Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week the show is proof that nightmares and dreamscapes do come true. My guest is Stephen King, so let's all take a moment and breathe and gather ourselves. Yeah, Stephen King. He's the author of Carrie, Salem's Lot, and... <laughs> Look, if I need to introduce Stephen King, you're listening to the wrong show. Unbelievably, he's listened to the show and agreed to come talk to me and you about a whole array of things. We discuss his new novel, Holly. No spoilers, because it's not out until September 5th. We cover his attitude to academia, to horror, and to hope. He gives hints about the future of an unfinished saga, and some concrete details of two upcoming books. And I have the audacity to run my grand, unifying Stephen King thesis past the man himself. And all the time, I was not cool. (laughs) Normally, I also cut out background noise. I work quite hard at it. But around the 40-minute mark, you'll hear everyone's favourite horror corgi, the thing of evil herself, Molly, having a nice bark, and it seemed only right to leave that in. Enjoy. If you like this and want even more Talking Scared, there's the Patreon channel, a few dollars a month for hours upon hours of extra episodes, including exclusive interviews, musing on all manner of weirdness, and some deep dives into classic horror. Just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod and sign up, Central Maine. No, come with me to a haunted hotel high in the Rockies. No, to an old cemetery out in the woods, or to a field of roses in a world far away. Look, just come with me. Let's pay fealty to the king. Let's talk scared. Well, hello Stephen King and welcome to Talking Scared. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Well, I'm I'm not going to lie, Stephen. I'm a little bit on edge because obviously (laughs) it's you. Yeah, but Neil, I've listened to the podcast, and you're fine, and uh, we'll be fine, and I'm the one that's worried about what I'm going to say. I'm not the most articulate person, you know. That's why writers are writers. We we write it down because we can't really talk it. I I think you'll be fine. I think you're very much amongst friends. Uh, Before we go any further, first question, most important question of the night, how's Molly? Oh, Molly is much better. Uh, She had a uh, fibrous tumor removed from her neck, and uh, she's healing up now, and uh, she's got a little tiny bit of a battle scar, but otherwise, she's good to go, I think. Oh, thank goodness for that. This is, as you'll hear as you listen to more and more, if you do, this is a very dog-loving podcast. My dog makes quite a lot of appearances uh, verbally. I'm actually writing an article this week for International Dog Day, and I've called it why I can't read Cujo anymore. (laughs) Because, yeah, I can't cope with that stuff at all. Um, Right, anyway, listen, as grand a moment as this is for Talking Scared, I can't spend too long on the intro because I have like a lifetime of questions and an hour to ask as many as I can. So can we just power straight on? Is that all right with you? Absolutely, straight on. Straight on till morning. As as the Marines say, Fido, fuck it, drive on. (laughs) I've never heard that one. I've heard FUBA, I never heard that one. First off, right, I know you became aware of the show because of the recent deep dive into it, 
with Nat Cassidy and Ali Melonienko, who I'm sure will be listening now. They're both fans of yours. Those episodes were recorded in absolute love for the book. But we also took, I think, a balanced approach. And it only seems fair to offer you the right of reply if you want it. Was there anything in our lengthy ministrations that you think was unfair or or just plain wrong? No, I mean, you promised a deep dive. I saw it on Twitter, which is now X, they say, but I continue to call it Twitter because, you know, I'm a sort of a, a revolting kind of guy, a revolutionary. So I saw on on Twitter that uh, they were going to do a deep dive. Uh, and I've seen Talking Scared on Twitter before, and I hadn't gone there. And I thought, well, we'll see if it's a deep dive or a shallow <laughs> dive or fanboys talking or something like that. But I thought that you did a wonderful job. And uh, one of the things that I was really interested in, you know, I've kept very quiet about the sexual stuff that's at the end uh, of the book where the Losers Club gets out of the uh, of the sewers. And uh, there's been a, a sort of a, an outcry. I mean, social media magnifies everything, so it's hard to know how much of an outcry there'll be. Uh, when I wrote the book, there was not a murmur from any readers about that particular scene. And certainly... Nobody in the editor's uh, club that, that worked on it, nobody said a word about it. Uh, it was considered, you know, just part of the story and uh, there were no eyebrows raised. But of course, uh, we've become almost painfully aware of sexual matters, particularly when they deal with uh, with kids, you know, mm -hmm. with minors. But what you guys touched on that brought a smile to my face when Ali said, you realize that there's all these murders of children in this book and nobody says anything about those. But when they talk about an act of love, oh my God, that's a different thing. So yeah. I enjoyed that whole uh, It podcast very much. And it led me to a couple of the others. And I've been copy editing a manuscript and so I haven't had a lot of time, but the one with Flanagan was terrific, and I intend to uh, uh, make it a resource. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that massively. I, I, I did one, another one with Ali all about middle-grade horror, and I did one with Nat all about his novel Mary, which you may not be aware of, but Mary is basically Nat's homage to carry. It's very much its own book. I know. I, we talked a little bit about that, or you talked about it mm -hmm. in the interview with uh, Flanagan. And I want to get that book, The Clackety. Oh, The Clackety. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Laura's book, The Clackety. That book is masterful. I mean, that is, it, it's just a beautiful novel. in every, And it's, it's weirdly dark and existential for kids. But I mean, there's one whole bit in that that is basically this character staring into the void, it's kind of her version of the to dash darkness thing. You know, she's looking into the void and it's a metaphor for suicide or all kinds of things. And and that, that book, along with Alice, kind of showed me that books for kids could be way more than I thought they could. Uh, but Neil, the thing is, I've been writing YA novels for years. They just have a lot of four-letter words in them. <laughs> and uh, I don't make a big deal of it. But a book like uh, uh, The Institute is yeah. really aimed at middle grade kids. It's just, you know, uh, 
William Golding once said, he, he was talking about planning Lord of the Flies, or he had the idea about the Lord of the Flies. And he was sitting by the fireside with his wife, and he said to her, what would you think if I were to write a boy's novel, but to write about it the way boys really are? Mm. And his wife said, I think that would be a, a wonderful idea, Bill. And so he wrote Lord of the Flies. And I've written a lot of books about kids, uh, which are what middle grade books really are or YA books are. But I refuse to call them that because let the kids find it on their own. That's all. You know, yeah. the same this is true with fairy tale. Fairy tale is kind of a YA book. Well, I have questions about fairy tale that tie into my thoughts on your wider work. But first of all, let's let's jump in with Holly because due diligence, you know, it's your, it's your new novel. It's not out for a month. This will go live soon, so the book won't be out for a month. I'm not going to ask you any kind of plot exposition. That would be unfair to the, the readers. But I am fascinated by character because you often say that Holly Gibney just wouldn't leave you alone. But I've never heard you go deeper. What is it about that character that, that's got such a grip on you? Well, I think that Holly seems different from the run-of-the-mill detectives. And she did from the first when she meets Jerome at the door. And uh, she says uh, to Jerome, oh, my goodness, you're black. And Jerome looks at his hands and says, whoa, I really am. And she says, oh, no, black is whack. Black is fine. And she invites him in and they go to the computer and they, they work together. And I thought at that point, there's something in this woman about the contrast between what she's able to do, because at the end of Mr. Mercedes, she takes a very active role, physical role. <clears throat> I don't want to give it away if somebody hasn't read that book. But at that point, I said to myself, this woman has a thousand bells and whistles. She is uh, obsessive compulsive. She's a chain smoker. She's insecure. She's mother ridden. And yet at the same time, She's got courage and she's got, you know, she's got balls. Mm -hmm. So uh, I said to myself, I would really like to meet her again. I don't plan ahead, but at some point I decided that I wanted to write another book about Bill Hodges and uh, Holly Gibney became a part of that. And eventually she just stepped forward into this, this new book and, uh, I'll say one thing about Holly is is I I had a scene that I wanted to write about uh, uh, her going to a Zoom funeral, her mother's mm -hmm. funeral on Zoom, and turning off the computer and crying. So I wanted to write that, and I didn't have a story to go with it. And then I read a headline in the New York Times. It was something like, uh, Everybody thought they were the sweetest old couple until bodies began to turn up in the backyard. And I said, I can do something with this. Yeah. And having read the book, that is deliciously darkly comical because the book's kind of darkly comical, or at least I thought it was. Anyway, you know, it, it made me smile in a lot of places and it, it's grimmer than I thought it was going to be. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to let listeners discover that for themselves. But here's another question about the whole Holly Gibney connective tissue, right? I find your approach to the central mysteries of these stories interesting 
Because this book, Holly, I would say is a kind of why done it. We know who done it. It's why they've done it. And The Outsider, which is a book I adore, is a how done it. You know, like how has this crime been committed? Why have you never written a straightforward who done it for Holly to solve? Because I can't plot that way. Uh, I've never been able to do the Agatha Christie thing where you have 12 characters in a room uh-huh. and you have to try to figure out which one did it and Miss Marple or uh, Hercule Poirot will figure out somehow based on clues that nobody else has seen. Now, Holly is is dogged. You know, there's a thing in uh, the new book where she puts on rubber boots on a hot summer day and goes tramping through foliage. She's scared to death that she's going to get poison ivy or something, but she comes up uh, with a clue. Mm-hmm. That interests me. But basically, Neil, you know, I, I'm not a mystery writer. I'm more of a suspense writer. Uh, I would like readers to see both sides of the board and know what's going on. Now, Holly makes some deductions that turn out to be wrong and very, very dangerous for her. Mm-hmm. But I'm sort of, I, I love what Ag- Alfred Hitchcock said about the bomb. He said, if you don't know there's a bomb in the room and it explodes, you get five seconds of horror. But if the audience knows the bomb is taped to the underside of the table, you get 10 minutes of terror. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, something's going to happen to Janet Lee when she goes into that awful motel, but you don't know exactly what until it happens. And when it happens, it's shocking. It's horrible. But then after that, you know who did it. You know, you don't know the final secret mm-hmm. of Norman versus Norma, but you know that. And you know, every time somebody comes to that motel, you immediately, you go, I, I, I. You know, there's also, uh, who is the novelist of the amazing Mr., the talented Mr. Ripley, Patricia Highsmith. Uh, Highsmith, yeah. Yeah. And she does the same thing. You know everything but the characters don't. And mm-hmm. for me, that's the real trick. Okay. It's funny you mentioned Psycho, because I um, <laughs> I had the, de- the rare delight the other day. My wife is very horror-averse, um, but we watched Psycho, and about sort of 20 minutes in, it dawned on me that she didn't know the twist. Mm-hmm. And the delight of watching that movie with someone who somehow doesn't know the twist is yeah. just, it's just a miracle in itself. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's how I felt. When I found out the first time that I read The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, Mm -hmm. that the narrator had done it. And I went, my God, that's amazing. You know, yeah, I can't do that. Okay, I can't do that. Well, what what you can do is come up with some very, very delicious monsters, human and otherwise. And the, the, the villains in Holly are... Elderly. This is this is all on the dust jacket, right? So I mean, this is not a spoiler for people. Mm-hmm. But the villains are an elderly couple, which is something that's coming in more and more in your work. You know, at one point I was like, "Are these guys part of the true knot or something like that?" Um, but they're also academics. 
Which gives me the perfect segue to ask you a question I've wanted to ask you for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been so fascinated by your attitude towards academia and that kind of rarefied criticism. We talked on the deep dive in it about Bill and his creative writing, writing teacher and that argument. Does that, what well, it was venom and now it seems to be something else, but does that antithesis towards um towards academia come from kind of experience of yours where does that come from well you know i've always been a writer who works pretty much from my nerve endings i don't work from a plot uh when john irving told me that uh the way he works is to write the last sentence first i thought to myself that's insane. I, I don't know how anybody would do that because I want to know how the story comes out and I don't plan ahead. I'm writing a book now where I don't have any idea exactly how it's going to end, but that's part of the challenge for me. It's part of the fun of it. Whereas I think that academics have a tendency to navel gaze. They have a tendency to overanalyze things uh, to do a, 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 a deep dive sometimes that's too deep. Uh, so they get the academic, the intellectual bends, if you will. <laughs> and uh, I, don't, I don't really like that. I, I, I think that, you know, when you cut things too fine, all you get is mush. You know, you should take the work entire and let it. I, I, I write from an emotional level. Uh, I don't have much use for John Updike. I can see the clarity of the sentences. But if you if you said, do you have any kind of an emotional reaction to that? Do you relate to that? I'd say absolutely not. Philip Roth, yes, you have an emotional reaction to that. Uh, John Steinbeck, very much yeah. an emotional reaction to that. Uh, or you take a writer like, you know, William Golding, uh, who is line for line, he's he's Updike's equal, but the emotion is there. The violins are there. It's a beautiful thing. The name I'd possibly add to that, although he's some he's somewhere between, I would say, you and Updike in his in his genre positioning is Cormac McCarthy, who has just died. And I get the sense he's a big loss to you. Yeah, yeah. There's a story in uh, that that I had an idea from. You know, people will say to you, to me, do you ever scare yourself, Mm -hmm. you know, with what you're writing on? And it's very rare for that to happen. It happens once in a while. Uh, When Danny Torrance got ready to go into room 217 in The Shining, you know, I had a reaction to that. Every day I got closer, I got more wired up, kind of. And finally he went into the room and I went into the room with him and I was scared by what he found there, that that woman in the tub. But it doesn't happen very often. And then uh, last year, there's a story, it'll be in a a book uh, that comes out next year called You Like It Darker. And uh, they're mostly news stories, long stories for the most part. And one of them is called The Dreamers. And uh, one night I was lying in bed I tell myself stories before I go to sleep. That's how I uh, I, I get to sleep. Mm-hmm. Me too. And I had this image 
of a man who was under some kind of drug and he opens his eyes and they turn black and these tendrils start to come out of his eyeballs. And it just creeped me out. It creeped me out. And I couldn't think about that anymore. I put that aside. And the next day I said to myself, oh, I remember that book, uh, Lovecraft's Beyond the Wall of Sleep. And I said, what if a man didn't get through the wall of sleep or over the wall of sleep, but under it? And what if there was something beyond that wall, beyond the actual dreams that we have, a, a reality that's huge, that's uh, you know, apocalyptic, some huge darkness that's sentient, that had something like that. And I thought, you know, that goes with the tendrils and the eyeballs. And I had that story like that, but I couldn't think about it at night. <laughs> I couldn't do that because it just was so creepy to me. And uh, I, I forgot where this was going. Where did we start, Neil? I asked you about Cormac McCarthy, but then oh, you told me a whole raft yeah. of stuff that's interesting, I, Stephen. <laughs> I did. And what happened was I had this story, and at the same time, I was reading Cormac McCarthy's penultimate book, The Passenger, uh -huh. uh, which is an interesting book. It has an interesting hook, but it never really goes the distance but it's the prose is beautiful and his prose unlocked that story for me. It's a very, it's dedicated to him. Well, for a start, the story sounds terrifying and it, that's going to get under my skin because I have a thing about dreams and, and sleep states and sleep paralysis and anything to do with sleep. Cause I have, I have night terrors. So that's going to fuck me up in a big way. So that's an, an, a new story collection next year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Awesome. It's a big one. Good to know. Cause I, I adored the Bazaar of Bad Dreams. And this is, I'm going to, I'm going to say a thing now that I, I, I guess, I'm going to guess not many people have said this to you, actually. My favorite things in the Bazaar of Bad Dreams were the two poems. <laughs> like, what's the, sorry, Stephen, my mind's gone blank. What is the one called about the, 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 the ghost elephants? Oh, uh, yeah, it's uh, called the Elephant Graveyard, isn't it? No, it's something, the green something, doesn't matter. Well, my listeners will know. But that that was just, why did you write that as a poem and not a story? Because it was such a wonderful kind of challenger Kipling type, type tale. Oh, I was reading a lot of uh, narrative poetry at that time by Robert Browning. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and that's so rich and so strange. Now, I'm not m much of a poet, uh, although the stuff about poetry in uh, Holly. But I thought to myself, maybe if I combine poetry with a prose, a prose idea, a plot idea, a story idea, maybe I can come up with something. So I gave it a try. But remember, it was written as an undergraduate a long, long time ago. So I was just a kid. I had a poem in You Like It Darker, but... Uh, they knocked it out. It'll be in the collected at some point down the road. Okay. Well, I look forward to it all. But yeah, that it's called the Bone Church. It's come back. The to Bone me. Church. Yeah. Yeah, and it's such a, a wonderful, horrifying sort of jungle story. So I just that last line though, elephants that never wear it really, and and the other one, the 
the other poem about the about the counterculture, you know, drink to the motherfucker, that refrain that runs throughout. I, I find it very moving. Yeah. Well, thank you. But I'm getting wiggy here. I had a plan for this. I've already gone way off it. Um, oh, we all do. Because <laughs> I know it's literally, Stephen, I've got a list of things I want to ask you. I've been storing up for decades. So, um, But the academia thing, I completely get your answer. I am a kind of recovering academic myself. I spent far too long at university, navel-gazing and waxing lyrical. An entire chapter of my thesis was focused on misery. Oh, good. Um, and I, I've always wanted to tell you that we aren't all bad. We, all, we don't all want to pin down butterflies until their magic is gone. No, I know that. I know that. But a lot do. And they, they don't do it on purpose. They do it inadvertently. But I mean, I think some do do it on purpose. I've met some uh. who do it on purpose. But yeah, I, I, I take your generosity. But I do have possibly the most pretentious question I'm going to ask you. Um, so this is something I've said repeatedly on this show about you. And I want, to, I want to basically hear if you think I'm talking out of my backside. So he, here goes. I have long argued that you are not a horror writer. And this is not in some dismissive way to sort, to sort of decry genre at all. But I think you are an American realist who just happens <laughs> to use horror and fantasy as the thing that adds drama to the stuff you really care about. Does that hold any water at all? It, it holds perfect water. It, it doesn't even leak. <laughs> uh, at least, you know, keep in mind, I'm not the best judge of my own work. That's for other people to decide uh, now and, and forever. But I can tell you this. I never sat down to write a horror story, a horror novel. Uh, there was a time when I suppose that uh, I honed in on those ideas when I was, uh, my wife and I were just starting out. We didn't have much money. We had two kids and, and no dough and we lived in a shitty apartment. And uh, the checks that I got for short stories in the men's magazines were the difference between keeping the enterprise afloat and seeing it go down to uh, <laughs> to bankruptcy or something like that. There was one day uh, when I came in and uh, my wife said, give me your wallet. I said, why? She said, just give me your wallet. Well, I gave her my wallet and she took out credit cards that we had gotten in the mail because banks used to send those then. And she cut them up and she said, too tempting. We can't afford the interest charges. So that's, that's where we were. And at that time, uh, I suppose that I thought, okay, this is what they're buying. And this is what the Writer's Digest says they're buying. And $200 is nothing to sneeze at because it'll buy the baby's medication. So yeah, I went ahead and I thought of stories like The Mangler and The Boogeyman and uh, maybe Children of the Corn, although at that time I had some breathing space. But even then, there were stories that I wrote that didn't hold any kind of a supernatural or monstrous element. Like the story like Quitters Incorporated, mm -hmm. which was just kind of fun, you know, uh, about quitting smoking and if the mafia ran a quit smoking clinic. And I thought, that's a fantastic idea. I got to do that. It made me laugh. So... As far as the novels go, 
I, I would be a monkey if I just said, I've got a really good idea, but uh, I don't want to write it because it isn't quote unquote horror, mm-hmm. horror enough. So my mind tends that way. People say, why do you write that terrible stuff? And I say, well, there's a compass inside your head. And eventually every person's compass, every writer's compass turns to true north. And that's what they want to write about. And with me, a lot of times that's been supernatural stuff. But the thing that I care about is how real I can make it and whether or not the characters ring true. Are they doing things that you would do, that I would do in that situation? Or am I somehow twisting things? Am I rigging the game to go in a certain direction that's horrible or maybe awful in some way? I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And the other thing is this, that, you know, people talk about and academics talk about uh, theme and life's work and this and that, uh, you know, things that are probably in your thesis, uh, <laughs> for all I know. But the thing is, you write a book, you spend anywhere from three months to get a first draft to this new one, which is already eight months going on nine, and it'll be a while longer because I'm not as fast as I used to be. You spend all that time and you say, why did I do that? What was this about? What is the purpose of this book? And you can look at it and it's always clear. There was always a reason, a driving force, some kind of uh, unfinished dialogue with the self that's in that book. And so you say to yourself, I want to tweak that. I want to bring it into focus a little bit. And so you do that. Now, people can call me a horror writer. They can call me anything they want, as long as they don't call me late to dinner. I don't care. It's nothing to me. I just want to do my work, you know. And it's a great job because I've been well compensated for it, and I can do what I want. Uh, No editor is going to come back to me and say, well, Steve, uh, this is a good book, but can you inject some more horror? It's like injecting water into a turkey to make it way heavier. Fuck that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, another thing I often think about you is that, and I've said, you know, with, with great self-importance, my thesis on Stephen King, you know, I, I've said that I don't think your books are ever about the horror. They're always about the thing that stands against the horror. And it, and obviously the stand being the case in point of that, you know, there in the title, and the importance of the word stand in your fiction. It comes up repeatedly. That I think it's sometimes you seem to feel, feel like that is the best thing a character can do in a situation is to, is to stand. It doesn't matter how you got there, but as long as you're on your feet, you know, yeah. that, that's, yeah. and I love that. And, and it, it doesn't, despite the fact that you write about these horrible things, it never often feels like you're writing to disturb or you are writing to dispirit. It feels like your instinct is, is, tends to be something more positive. Is that true? Yeah, it is. Uh, I have a tendency to feel that most people are good. Mm. That's that's the baseline that I start from, that most people are good. You know, there's this story about uh, uh, the Samaritan that Jesus tells. Uh, the Samaritan falls by the side of the road and a priest goes by and a Levite goes by 
and uh, they don't pay any attention to this guy. And the Samaritan comes by and says, oh, man, uh, you look fucking awful. Uh, you got to come home with me and get a meal and, and get healed up and all that. Now, my view is a wonderful story, but I think that the priest or the Levite in the world that I know would probably say, ah, man, you got, we got to do something for you. We got to get, uh, you know, get you to, to a place, to a hospital or to an ER or a clinic or something like that whatever they had back in those days, you know. I think that most people are good, and I think most people are smart, and most people are brave. There are a lot of bad people out there. We know that. There are people that do awful things, terrible things. You, do, you wouldn't even want to go there in a book. You really wouldn't. I mean, to me, there's a, a scene in it that's about the worst thing that I've ever written. It's where a uh, a, a stepfather beats his son Dorsey's head in uh, mm. with a recoilless hammer. It's a terrible scene. It's much worse than any any sex that goes on in the sewers uh, with the Losers Club. Much, much worse. And yet, I think that most people care and try to stand against the darkness, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's this, a, a line, my favorite line in The Stand, and it's it's uh, in the miniseries, the first one, and uh, it's in the book. It's where Stuart Redman is being taken by the uh, uh, military to be sequestered. And he says, country ain't dumb. And to me, that's the truth. I. I love deliverance, but I, I don't believe those hillbillies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. But how do you, oh, loaded question this, I apologize. How do you reconcile that worldview, which I completely agree with, and I'm tussling with this in my own country. How do you reconcile that with this schizophrenic moment that America is having? Well, short answer is I don't understand it. Mm. Uh, when... I talk to people who support uh, uh, anyone from Mr. Trump to these right-wing ideas about culture and and uh, uh, sort of poo-pooing the whole uh, nasty racial background of the United States. Uh, when I see something that, that people support about how, well, actually, some black slaves learn valuable life skills. You know, that's the new thing that's in the textbooks. I think to myself, I can't really talk to these people. And it's, it's very distressing to me, Neil, because it's as though America is verging on uh, the, the point where almost, you don't want to use the Nazi word, mm. but there is a sense of deliberately turning away from the science and from history uh, in an effort to find a quick, easy solution. Solution, You know, it's like uh, the guy who, who could not untie the Gordian knot. So finally he takes a sword and cuts it in two. And that uh, solves the question of the, the knot, but it doesn't solve the question of the rope because that's useless now. 
Yeah. Because look, look, there's a story. There's a story about Gerald Ford, who was the president who succeeded Richard Nixon. And and he was in the House of Representatives for a long time. He was picked to be vice president uh, after Spiro Agnew resigned as a figurehead, just as a figurehead. And there were people who said uh, Jerry Ford played too much football without a helmet. And uh, I don't know if that was true or not, but this guy said the perfect thing that sort of expresses everything I feel about this paranoid, this this schizophrenic uh, split between people as I want them and feel that they're to be and what's going on with the right wing in America now. They said, this guy said, if Gerald Ford was walking to the Capitol to vote and he had a bag lunch and he saw a hungry black child he would give that black child his lunch and then go to the Senate, to the House, and vote against a bill for the federal government to pay subsidized for lunches to mm. poor children and never see the contradiction. So I would say to you, you know, my brother, who's passed on now, was a, an avid uh, supporter of Donald Trump. And yet at the same time, if if he was driving his car and he saw you with a flat tire, he wouldn't know you from Adam. And he would pull over and take off his shirt and roll up his sleeves and jack up that tire and put his own spare on your car and not accept any payment for it. So that's the split. I don't understand it. Well, I, I recognize it all too well over here, but you know, I, I won't, I won't go down that road. There's too many cool things to talk about books. I, ju I just read a book. I just read a book. Uh, that was called uh, Light Perpetual, and it's by um, oh man, can't think of the guy's name now. But Francis Spufford. Francis Spufford. Yeah, he's got stuff in there about the skinheads, and it's amazing. Yeah, because I think of all your villains. I mean, I, I may have said this the other week, but you know, people compare the Dead Zones Greg Stilson to Trump. You know, they compared that that came up again and again and again when Trump was in charge. I think your scariest villain, forget the clown, Big Jim Rennie in the dome, because <laughs> my God, has that come to pass? You know, small town, tin pot, Napoleon Hitler's like, that is just, we've seen it emerge from the shadows in the last sort of five or six years. That book, that book scares the hell out of me. Yeah. I, uh, Jim Rennie was written at a time when George, W. Bush was president. He was president for two terms. Mm -hmm. And I thought that man was just incredibly dumb about the things that he was doing. And one thing in particular that upset me was that he just sort of turned a blind eye to the changes in the climate. And I thought, well, if I do this book under the dome, that air is going to get polluted in a hurry. And, and uh, these people are going to be in a situation where Jim Rennie saying, oh, don't worry about it. We have to go ahead and burn gasoline and do all this stuff. And never mind that the supplies are going to run out eventually and we're going to pollute our own nest, so to speak. We have to do it. So I love Jim Rennie. I loved him as a, as a bad guy. He was he was a relief because he was bad all the way through. <laughs> it scared the hell out of me. I just saw it coming true in real time. Um, but whilst we're on Under the Dome, right, I know you, I heard you tell another podcast. I think it was the King Cast. 
to get a life when they ha- when they asked a nerdy question like this. <laughs> but when am I going to get chance again? So the, the symbol on the box at the end of Under the Dome and the same symbol on its lair. Come on, Stephen, what is the link there? Or are you just pulling our chain? It's also the symbol in the Tommyknockers. Is it? On the, on the buried, uh, on the buried uh, flying saucer that uh, Guard finds. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's the same symbol. And uh, I wanted something that was a little bit uh, alien, so to speak. And I found some Chinese ideographs and I picked one and then I changed it enough so that it wouldn't be. I mean, it was an ideograph for something like uh, beware or don't trespass or something. And I went ahead and, and changed it a little bit. It looks a little bit like pie. Mm. Yeah, it does. Yeah. But does, there's no connective tissue then really to get our teeth into. You're just playing around. Not exactly playing around. I mean, there are forces out there, uh, sentient forces. Uh, in the story that I was talking about before, the dreamers, mm-hmm. uh, they plaster these dark tendrils and uh, they spell out um, in Vietnamese, the world, the, the moon is full of demons. And uh, I thought to myself, there's a force, there's something there beyond the wall of sleep, if you will, uh, Lovecraftian, if you like. And uh, I'm sure that the, the aliens starting in the Tommyknockers are not uh, particularly friendly. They may not consider us. I mean, in Under the Dome, at the end of that book, um, it turns out that we're so unimportant mm. to some other beings that we're like ants in an ant farm. Yeah. Yeah. That's the whole Lovecraftian idea, right? We are meaningless. But it's in, I've just picked up on something. You mentioned, so this book about the dreamers, um, I'm being a smart arse here, forgive me. <laughs> you mentioned Vietnamese. Are you aware of the, this, this urban legend in, I think it's Laotian people, where this group of people all died and they've been having the same dream? No, I don't know that. Because it's either, it's either Laotian or they were the, the Hmong people of Vietnam. I can't remember which, but yeah, in the 70s. A lot of people, they, was, they kept having a recurring nightmare. They said they were being pursued by a dark figure, and they mm-hmm. all died in their sleep. It's what gave rise to Freddy Krueger in Wes Craven's imagination. Yeah. So um, I wondered if you were riffing on that. No, in, in the story of the Dreamers, uh, this scientist uh, gives his uh, subjects a light hypnotic, and he shows them a picture of a, uh, uh, a red house with a green roof with smoke coming out of the chimney. And he says... I want you to look at this picture, and when you go into a dream state, I want you to dream about this house, and I want you to go up, and uh, I want you to open the door. And some of the test subjects say, well, will the door open? And the, the experimenter says, I don't know. It's your dream, but go in and go down the hall and go to the living room and kneel down and pick up the floor. And... The, the test subjects say, well, we can't pick up a floor. It's much too heavy. The experimenter says, it's your dream. You may be able to pick up the floor, see what's under the floor in the darkness. And so they do it. Some succeed and, and some don't. But uh, yeah, it's a scary, scary story. 
it's got to mess me up, that story. Well, you often talk about how your horror is exterior rather than interior. Yeah, you know, you, you said before about how the audience often expect a boogeyman. Um, and I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, you have covered kind of the gamut of classic tropes, and you've established a fair few yourself, but is there anything from the, the classic horror playbook that you've, you either wish you'd handled, wish you'd tackled, or, or kind of regret that you haven't? Well, I never dealt with a mummy. I never did. Uh, Mick Garris, who directed some films that I was involved with, said, oh no, the mummy is after us. Let's all walk a little slower. So it never really sparked my imagination. Uh, I was always tempted to write a story or a book about the last voyage of the Demeter. And now mm. I see someone's made a movie about that. And uh, it's supposed to release in theaters for a, 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 a very soon. But in terms of monsters, I thought that it was sort of my final exam about monsters. I said to myself, I want to think of all the monsters that scared me as a kid. And I want to put these kids up against them because this creature has the ability to become whatever it wants. And so, you know, I did that. Yeah. And again, like that's the one place where fear is both exterior and interior, right? Because yeah, it's a thing over there, but it feeds on what's inside you as well. So it is the ultimate monster. Yeah. <laughs> as much as I like Cycle of the Werewolf, I always wish you'd written a big, bombastic, fully-fledged werewolf novel. I always thought that would have been cool. Well, I only did that because this guy came up to me at a fantasy con. This was years ago. And uh, he said, he said, wouldn't it be cool to do a calendar uh, and it would be like a continuing story uh, each month of the year? What would that be? The only reason I really wanted to do it, man, was because he said Bernie Wrightson would do the illustrations and I just love Bernie Wrightson's work. Yeah. He's second only to Frank Frazetta, in my mind, is a really great fantasy artist. So I said, well, of course, it's got to be werewolves because it's a full moon about every month. And yeah, werewolves never turned me on the way that vampires always did. And I think it's because... <clears throat> When I was 11 or 12, I read Dracula, and that book just transported me. Mm -hmm. I thought vampires, they're really scary and cool and interesting and, and all that. Werewolves, I realized, we've talked about this already in this, about, you know, how done-its and why done-its. And with a werewolf story, even one as short as Cycle of the Werewolf, it would have to be a whodunit. And so... Like I say, that really never excites me that much. And I'm not very good at it, but I did the best I could with what I had. Well, what you are good at, and right, this is a question I don't have any right to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You know, so it, the stand, under the dome, 112263, needful things, right? I, Wizard and Glass, these are my favorite of your books. In fact, I, you, you probably don't know this. I, I ranked and reviewed every single one of your books for Esquire. Nah. And it it nearly killed me doing it. <laughs> like, like you've written so much. It's 75 fucking books, Steve. And I had to like, because I'm going off tangent here, but I once spent an entire year 
where I only read your books in consecutive order, one after the other. That's how much of a nerd I am, right? But that's, those... That's terrifying. Oh, it was amazing. I had a whole thing on my refrigerator with like like dates and times. And it, I think it took me... I finished it just when Gwendy came out, the first Gwendy book. And uh, yeah, I read, I've read them all before, but I read them all in sequence. And it's wow. it allowed me to map things and see the concordance in a way I never had before. And the, and the extent to which you used to love the word heliograph in your early fiction. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but... The books that really speak to me and a lot of the, the listeners are these big world books that are like a world unto themselves. Do you think you'll ever write another multi-character door-stopping epic? Well, I'm getting a little bit old these days. You probably didn't notice that, but I'm getting a little bit old. Hush, Stephen. Uh, those... Long books, and by the way, of, of all the books in the Gunslinger series, uh, Wizard and Glass is my favorite because it's kind of a love story and uh, it yeah. has a real kind of total feel. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and I, I really like that. It has some great scenes in it that I, I really enjoyed writing. Uh, the scene with the old witch, uh, Rhea, at the beginning where yeah. she gets uh, tested for honesty. I like that. Anyway, I get carried away sometimes, and uh, then I will plan a book uh, sometimes, and I'll there mostly with the exception of eleven twenty two sixty three. They have a, a shift in focus. Uh, many characters with under the dome. Uh, I was on a plane to Australia. Uh, and that's a long, long flight. And I thought to myself, how am I going to pass all this time? You can only watch one movie. You can only read one novel. And I thought to myself, well, you have this idea from the old days about Under the Dome. What if, what if now you were to start that book with one character, Barbie in that case, and I thought to myself, yes. And what if the next chapter had two characters and then three and then four and then five? It's kind of like creating a pyramid shape going mm -hmm. down. And I thought all these characters will interact and you can go back and forth between the two of them and at the same time move the story along. And I got so excited by that that the pages just flew for me flew by. Now, 112263 was a harder one and I really had to to work. The, the great secret of what I do is that most of the time I would pay you to do this job. <laughs> you know, but with that book, you were supposed to pay me because I had to do a lot of research about the the shooting, but it was fun still. But but you think that those days maybe in your past those big Epics. Well, never say never. I mean, there's one thing that I have uh, sort of in the active file. Uh, there are two books, The Talisman and Black House by me mm -hmm. and Peter Straub. And before he died, Peter sent me this long letter and said, we ought to do the third one. And he gave me uh, a really cool idea. And I had some ideas of my own. So that would be a long book. 
um, if I can actually muster up the energy to write it. We'll all chip in, Stephen. We'll all help. Whatever you need, right? We all we all want it. It doesn't work that way, though. I, you know, in the end, you're alone. Yeah. So I've heard you say a few times, right, that your name may be forgotten, but that fucking clown will live forever. Yeah. If you had your way, which would be the one book that would represent you in the great cosmic library? Boy, that's that's a tough one. You know, my temptation is to say everything, everything, everything. Well, I think I know what's going to last. The horror stories will last. It's like, you know, Bram Stoker was not anybody's idea of uh, Hardy, the, the greatest writer in the world. But Dracula survives as a monster. Now, if you ask kids uh, who's the most famous vampire, they would say Dracula. And then if you say who created Dracula, they go, oh, I don't know. Who created Dracula? Yeah. And that's why I say that people might not remember me, but they'll remember the fucking clown. I guess <laughs> there are a couple of things. Uh, the body and uh, the, the, the um, Shawshank Redemption, those stories, I would like to see them last. Misery, I'd like to see that uh, last. It might. I thought you were going to say Lisey's story. Well, Lisey's story is my favorite. It's close to my heart, yeah. but I'm not sure... Yeah that that's the one. I'll tell you a thing about Lisey's story. I was reading that when it came out and I was in a job I hated and I was reading on my lunch hour sitting in a coffee shop and I got to like a really deep section about Scott Langdon's youth and his horrible boyhood and the stuff with his brother and it upset me so much that I went home and never went back to that job. <laughs> I just had to go home. I couldn't, I couldn't face another afternoon in the office. It upset me on like a gut level in the way that people talk about pet cemetery upsetting but them. you My didn't God. but you didn't go home and beat the shit out of your father or anything no no my father's one i quite like him and he's a lot tougher than me yeah, um, ah, there you go but yeah yeah but no that jesus that scotland and stuff my god um right we've got to draw this towards an end Stephen. so i'm going to ask like the all important question on any interviewers list what are you working on now what can we expect in the future well i'm working on a book uh called we think not and it's nominally about Holly Gibney, but and Holly's in the book, but there are a lot of other people in the book as well, and there are too many stories. I feel kind of like the mad juggler with this thing. I'm trying to drop all the ball, keep all the balls in the air and not drop any of them. So, And you were talking about uh, doorstopper books. This might be a, a fairly long book, and uh, the... You Like It Darker, the book of new stories is, you know, over mm -hmm. 600 pages long. So that qualifies nice. as a uh, moderate doorstopper, I guess. But but I never talk too much about what I'm working on, but uh, I'm working okay. on it. Okay. Have you, have you um, found a story yet to go with that image of the bus in the desert that was taunting you? No. <laughs> Okay. Right. Well, that's that's your books talked about. Um, I always ask my guests if they would care to recommend a book by somebody else for my listeners to read. You're an avid reader. What what would you like to put in other people's hands? I've read two books lately that I thought were really good that, uh, you know, kind of fit this, this podcast. Uh, one is by M.R. Carey, and it's called The Boy on the Bridge. Um, Mike Carey uh, does comics and things like that. It's a novel in full, and 
It has to do with a uh, future world where London is in ruins and uh, these creatures uh, uh, called the Hungries are uh, taken over the landscape. And if they uh-huh. eat you, they turn you into something that's like a zombie. And it's a little bit like the uh, TV show, um, The Last of Us. It's like that. Uh, it's a mushroom thing that's taken over the brain and it's just hungry. So that was a, a great book because it had it fulfilled me and made me want to read more. And then mm-hmm. there's a, a new book that's uh, published in a Cemetery of Dance uh, edition called DMV by Bentley Little. And I like Bentley Little because he is the poet of the surreal. Uh, <laughs> he always takes a large organization and makes it supernatural. He populates it. Uh, he did one about big box stores where all at once the devil takes off over this chain store. And uh, the new one is, is supposed the uh, devil or monstrous creatures took over the uh, motor vehicle administration. And uh, it's a bureaucracy that everybody in America hates. And I suppose you have something like it in England where everybody has to line up. And in this story, uh, you can get a license to run people over, for instance. Uh, you can get a driver's license, <laughs> license to uh, dismember your parents and all that. And so it's it's wonderful, it's surreal, and it's uh, satiric, and I just loved it. Right, they'll both go in the show notes. I never read Bentley Little, so that might be a good place to start. He, he had a, a Bentley Little had a... Uh, a TV series over here. I think it's on Apple TV. It was based on one of his books. I think it's called maybe The Facilitator. Does that sound okay. right? I'm, I'm not aware of it, but maybe. Um, I'll check it out. Like I said, never read him, so I need to check him out. Are you checking now? I am. It is called The Consultant. It's got uh, the guy in it... Uh, Oh, man, I can't think of it. We're both getting mixed up. Who knows? Um, before I ask you the last question, Stephen, can you do me one favor? Because everyone will listen to you and they don't listen to me. Can you tell everyone they should read Stephen Markley's The Deluge? Yes, you should definitely read Stephen Markley's The Deluge. It is the best book about climate change uh, that you can possibly uh, get hold of. He did everything right. And it has a wide range of characters. Uh and once you get into it, there's no way that you can't finish it. Uh, he, you talk about energy and you talk about <clears throat> a ceaseless ability to visualize the future. That book had it all. Oh, I loved it. it. It broke my world open. And it's all coming true. Everything that he wrote in the book is coming true. The heat waves, the fires, the hurricanes, all true. Yeah, it terrified me completely. Um, Which brings to my last question, Stephen, and I cannot believe I have the joy of asking you this, but what really, truly scares you? You know, I used to say spiders, because spiders just absolutely horrify me. A lot of other bugs that don't bother me at all. Uh, Anything from mosquitoes to wasps to bees, none of those things bother me. Snakes don't bother me much, but spiders, just so alien. And I don't think it's any mistake, uh, and not surprising anyway, that uh, 
when you read the end of it and you see that final shape, it's not surprising considering that I don't like it. But I think as I get older, the thing that frightens me the most is losing my mind. My mind is my mm. tool. It's what I have. And the idea of Alzheimer's, dementia, senility, what Shakespeare calls the slippered pantaloon, that that really, it's not a thing I like to think about. And I hope it won't happen. But I will say one other thing, and that is to wake up in the middle of the night and you're alone in the house and hear footsteps. That's the scariest thing I can think of. Just a footstep. I hope my listeners are listening to this alone in their house and you've just scared the shit out of them. So, well, Stephen, I've tried to hold sycophancy at bay for the last hour, but... <laughs> this is great. No, this has been great, man. I've really enjoyed it. You, you must know that your work means the world to so many, many people, including my listeners, but I point blank refuse to believe it means more to anybody than it does to me. So thank you for all the stories that have chilled and warmed my horror-loving heart all these years. Thanks for the, I don't know, the handhold in the darkness. And on behalf of me and my listeners, thank you for talking scared. Well, you really touched me, and I'm really glad that you feel that way uh, because I love what I do, and if it shows, then that's a good thing for you, and it's a good thing for me. Silence. A bit more silence. Right. That was quite something. Um, normally I know just what I want to say in these outros, but this week I'm a little bit lost for words. It's made doubly difficult by the thought that Stephen may be listening. Um, I was so keen to avoid sycophancy and obsequiousness, because that must get boring, right? being constantly adulated, especially as the man himself is so down to earth. But I mean, he must have known what that meant to me. I mean, what, what it means to anyone in horror who gets five minutes with him. But you don't want to cripple a conversation by being all, all fanboy. But now, in this afterward, I have to be honest with you, at least, because you all know what this means to me. I mean, the first thing I did after the interview was ring my dad, and ask him if he remembered 1994, when I was 11, he and I sitting watching the Mick Garris adaptation of The Stand over four nights. Could he believe that 30 years later, I spoke to the man who has been the North Star in my creative life all these years? Madness. I'm, I'm babbling. Look, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. There were so many things that I wanted to explore and that I knew I was never going to be able to cover more than 1%. I mean, I have 29 years worth of questions to ask the man. And I also wanted to avoid being too niche and geeky about the books. I wanted to approach the conversation in a way that allowed him to pick which books to illustrate his answer. I made choices and I hope you aren't disappointed because I did feel a lot of responsibility with this one to do the job right because you, dear listeners, dare I say constant listeners, have been instrumental in getting me here. And this conversation wasn't just for me. He found out about talking scared because of the it deep dive. So when I say every week that I'm grateful for the shares and the comments and the retweets and the reviews, this is why. 
please keep doing it because one of you at least put me on Stephen King's radar. So thank you from the bottom of my shocked heart. I'm not going to say anything about Holly, really, because it would all be spoiler and his publicist would hunt me down, except to say that I liked it a great deal. I wasn't an early convert to Holly and the Bill Hodges trilogy. I wanted horror, not crime, damn it. Annie Wilkes had a point. (laughs) But with this new book, and with The Outsider, which I do love, I'm all in. And Holly is a delightfully nasty story. Expect it. But how good does The Dreamers sound? I mean, I always look forward to a King short story collection, and and with You Like It Darker, it sounds like he may have gone full bore scary. Who knows? I mean, long-term listeners will know why that story in particular sounds machine tool to fuck me up. My sleep issues leave me wide open and vulnerable, but God, I'm looking forward to it. And I also think... I may be the very first person he's told about the collection and that We Think Not, the new Holly Gibney book, which means you all have an early heads up too, so feel the power. Forgive me this extended intro. I hope you understand why I'm being so verbose this week, but I do have a proposal to put to you, and there seems no better time than now whilst all the new King lovers have found the show. New people, trust me, I don't usually go on quite this long. I'm not this wordy and self-important typically. But here we go. Talking Scared is probably going to take a break in early 2024. Yeah, it's got a little bit ridiculous. (laughs) I've talked about needing a hiatus before and never taken one. And if I don't, I may fall through the floor into whatever darkness lurks beneath. (laughs) That or my wife will kill me. But I don't want to disappear entirely from your feed. So I was already planning something that would be more laid back for me, but maybe a nice bit of alternative fun for you. Following the success of the It Deep Dive, I was thinking of taking a few months off the typical show format to release a similar sequence of explorations of the Dark Tower books. And it would be with some guests who have never read the stories before, so they'd be reading the books and experiencing the story and having their hearts broken in real time, which would make the series digestible for listeners who are new to the story. But also, I'd be there to throw in charming quips and knowing asides for those who have. Let me know if you think it's a good idea. I mean, I'll probably do it anyway, but I enjoy affirmation. (laughs) And for those of you thinking, oh no, it's the last thing I want, apologies, but I'd be taking a break anyway, so you don't actually lose anything, you know? So get in touch about that, or pretty much anything you want off the back of this episode. You can find me at TalkScaredPod on Insta, TikTok, and Twitter, and I'm with King, it'll always be Twitter, or email me at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. Exciting news too, I've got a brand new website. It's still a work in progress, but it's there at talkingscaredpod.com. Give it a visit, you know, give me your thoughts. I plan to have a whole section devoted to curating every single book that we've talked about on this show. Mammoth task. Um, There'll also be a mailing list and loads of resources and, and blah, blah, blah. I've talked enough. I'll update you going forwards, but check it out, talkingscaredpod.com. Right, we may have reached the mountaintop this week, but the work never stops. On we roll. 
And in a perfect piece of timing, next week's episode is a wonderful follow-up to this one. Sadie Hartman, a.k.a. Mother Horror, will be on the show for a good old chinwag about her brand new release, 101 Horror Books to Read Before You're Murdered. It's a great horror-loving chat that'll explode your to-read list. And if anyone is brand new to this show because they like Stephen King, Sadie's book and that conversation are a fantastic way to expand your horror horizons and find some wonderful lesser-known work. So that's next week. Hope to see you there. Until then, follow the beam, never truckle, and believe that dreams can come true. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.